The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's passage comes from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It's on page 846 of the Black Pew Bible. Please stand with me as I read God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of God. Well, we are picking back up in our uh, sermon series called Everyday Disciples. So if you remember, um, a couple weeks leading up to Easter, we started this sermon series. We hit pause in order to celebrate uh, the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday, Easter Sunday, last Sunday. And now we're going to pick back up into the sermon series and we're going to be there for today and the two weeks out. Um, I would appreciate any prayer beyond Uh, because what we're going to be doing is coming out of this sermon series, we're going to go back to what is the normal ebb and flow of our biblical preaching diet. And that is we're going to dive into a book of the Bible, specifically the book of Hebrews. We're going to camp in Hebrews, at least the way I have it divided up now, probably through the end of 2021. It might take us even into 2022. So it's going to be a bit more of a deep dive for us in the book of Hebrews, okay, as we we seek to chew on one of the great books of, of the New Testament. If you haven't read Hebrews in a while, I encourage you to start reading now because it is full of Old Testament references, a lot of Old Testament references that some of us may not be familiar with if we're not reading our Old Testament. Things of priests, Aaron, Joshua, the guy named Melchizedek who seems to pop up every now and then that no one really knows anything about, temples and all these sorts of things. Constantly the writer is saying, hey, remember this stuff in the 
Old Testament. This is how Jesus is the fulfillment. This is how Jesus is better. This is how Jesus stands at the center of all of these things that we, that we need as the apostle, the priest that we need. So I would encourage you to go ahead and start, start um, diving into the book of Hebrews as well. But for this morning, what we're going to do is pick back up with a sermon series, Everyday Disciples. Sermon title this morning is this, I am a servant. I'm a servant, okay? So we have talked about how I am a worshiper, how I am in a family, a Jesus family, and then this morning I am a servant. The main idea is this, a servant has been created, a servant has been saved, a servant has been called to serve, and their service is all about the gospel. A servant has been created, saved, and called to serve, and their service is all about the gospel. We are going to turn to God's holy word, John 13, 1 through 17, to see this main idea come to light. So let's pray, let's ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll turn to these verses. Father, our aim right now is to come and to submit ourselves to you by submitting ourselves to your word so that we might walk in obedience as servants looking to Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Holy Spirit, you love to shine the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking that you turn our hearts and minds now, that you would cause us to lend our attention, turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would lead us to see Jesus and what he is doing and teaching and saying and demonstrating in this foot washing about our need to be cleansed through what he accomplished at the cross and then what that even means for us to then go and live as servants. Holy Spirit, I cannot make us see Jesus. I don't have that kind of power, nor do I want that kind of power. That is something that you alone do, Holy Spirit. So I'm asking, set me aside as it were, Make these words on paper come to life so that we might walk out of here this morning changed, legitimately, legitimately changed and matured by the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us, growing us to be more and more like our resurrected King. It's in the name of Christ, our servant King, I pray these things. Amen. So again, as I was just saying, flashback in your mind to a couple of weeks ago. We launched this sermon series by turning to Jeremiah chapter 17, where Jeremiah gave us a word picture of the scorched desert, desert bush and, and the thriving green tree, right? And we stitched those two realities together, talking about what does it mean to be someone who's just barely surviving like that desert shrub or someone who is thriving in the crucible of daily life like that green tree was there pictured in Jeremiah 17, recognizing that the year 2020 brought a lot of heat for people. 
scorched a lot of people. The crucible of 2020 landed on several of us in, um, in very harsh ways, and most of us in a lot of areas of life would say, I was less thriving, more surviving, less green, fruit-bearing tree, more desert shrub being scorched by the crucible of daily life. So we said, let's talk about this. What does the Bible have to say about these sorts of things? Because what you need to know, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but 2020 is not an anomaly. There are going to be more 2020s that will come at some point in time because we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. So the question is, when 2020 lands in your lap again, how can we look more like the green, thriving, fruit-bearing tree who is thriving even in the heat, despite the year of drought, says Jeremiah in in, uh, chapter 17. What does that look like? So we said it will look like this, that a thriving disciple can know that it is possible to be a thriving disciple in the heat of daily life. That was the whole point of that first sermon from Jeremiah 17. So then, rolling out of that, we recognized that we need to give some legs to this statement, right? It's not just enough to say, it's possible for you to be a thriving everyday disciple, even in the heat of daily life. Well, that's good news, but like, how can I know that I'm actually moving along the trajectory, that God is growing me, maturing me along the spectrum of belief to maturity so that when this 2020 lands again, I can find myself thriving. And what we said is this, is that we will begin to know we are thriving is if we see, as we see growth in five key gospel-shaped identities. Now, we've talked about two of those identities. The first one is this, is that a thriving everyday disciple is a worshiper, The second one we said was this, that a thriving everyday disciple is anchored in a Jesus family. So if you are seeing yourself grow and mature as a worshiper, if you're seeing yourself grow and mature, being anchored in a Jesus family, you can know that God is working in you, maturing you, sinking your roots down deep into that living water, again, a la Jeremiah 17, so that the next time the drought comes, you will be fruit-bearing. So this morning what we're doing is we're turning our attention to a third gospel-shaped identity, and it's this, that a thriving everyday disciple is a servant. They are a servant. But as we know all too well, a heart disposition of servanthood does not come natural to you. It does not come natural to me. We love to believe that I should be the center of your universe and that you exist to orbit my world. That's just the natural heart bent of someone who's come into this world definitely as an unbeliever, but all of us sitting here this morning as true worshipers who have been born again and folded in the family of God know that even as a Christian, true believer, born again, true worshiper, we still struggle with the idea of waking up in the morning and sort of sitting on the throne expecting the whole world to bow and submit to me and orbit me as the center of their universe. That's still a legitimate struggle that all of us have. You see, because outside of faith in Christ, our natural tendency is to jockey for position. We want to believe the lie that it is better to be served than to serve someone else that it's better to receive than to give, 
that it's better to be great rather than lowly. Outside of Christ and even in Christ, we struggle because we demand platforms. We clamor for leadership. We show up in places and say, I need to be in charge of you. We don't naturally show up and say, what can I do in order to humble myself and to serve you? We hunger for recognition as we manipulate others with heart attitudes that truly believe the question, who is the greatest, deserves only one answer, I am. I am the one who's greatest. And of course, this attitude isn't limited to our cultural mindset. It is also found in our churches today. It was even seen among the disciples of Jesus Christ who frequently argued with one another over that very question, who is the greatest? You go and you read the gospel accounts, what you'll find was there were several interactions in front of Jesus and apart from Jesus where they were constantly jockeying for position, fighting for recognition, so that when people on the outside looked into the 12, the 12 disciples, somebody would be at the, at the top, And they would be like, ah, good old Peter. He's obviously the greatest of the 12, or John, or James, or go on down the line. So they were constantly arguing about that question, who is the greatest, because they were dead set that the answer should be whoever is staring back at them when they look in the mirror in the morning. You, sir, are the greatest. That That was the bent of their heart there. If you go into Luke chapter 22, Verses 24 through 26, we get a snapshot of one of these arguments in the Gospel of Luke. And what's interesting about this argument about who is the greatest in Luke 22 is that it actually happens right on the cusp of the crucifixion. So when you stitch John 13 together with Luke 22, what you discover is that right before Jesus humbly, lovingly lowers himself to wash the dirt-caked, filthy feet of the disciples, the disciples, a la Luke 22, were just arguing with one another, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So starting in verse 24, Luke chapter 22, Luke the doctor says, a dispute also arose among them. So here they are fighting. Jesus is literally hours away from being crucified on the cross. The disciples are arguing with one another. You know what? I think I'm going to be greater than you, bro, when, when this whole thing comes, comes shaking out. Dispute rises among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, Jesus, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. You see, these verses, as I said, are a parallel passage to John 13, where Luke tells us that even when the cross was just literally hours away, the disciples are arguing, you know what, I'm going to be greater than you. Then someone's like, no, actually, I'm going to be greater than you. And there's this web of arguing of pride-filled arguing. Jesus, though, acknowledges to these disciples that the world has a certain way of viewing greatness. But ultimately, the world's way of greatness is backward. It's one of one-upmanship. The world's way of viewing greatness is, don't you dare be thought as the one who likes to 
give rather than receive. Don't you dare be thought of one who will be low as opposed to great. The world says do whatever you need to do to outsurpass the person next to you because you have to make them go low in order for you to go high. Jesus acknowledges this. But ultimately, he says, the world's way of greatness is backward. Thus, this self-congratulatory power jockeying among the disciples should not be so with you, he says. Rather, let the greatest be as the youngest. Let the leader be as one who serves. You see, servanthood is an unavoidable reality for you. It's an unavoidable reality for me. As the great theologian Bob Dylan put it, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It's what Chris said up here. It's not a matter of, am I a servant? It's a matter of, who or what are you serving? You're going to serve somebody, says Dylan. In other words, we are in constant service to something because God has hardwired us to be this way. But while we were created to serve God, sin has disordered this hardwiring. And apart from God's liberating love, we are destined to make our lives and our service all about ourselves. This is why sinners require a fundamental transformation of our self-serving nature. We are selfish. We are independent. We are arrogant self-seekers with cold, hard hearts. But what Jesus demands from us is to live as selfless, to live as trusting, to live as humble servants. And the only way this will be possible is if who I am fundamentally changes. This is why we need the servant savior, the servant savior specifically who stoops to save self-serving sinners and to transform us from his heart of love. We need the king, the king of kings, to come and humbly do what we could not do for ourselves, which is transform our self-serving, self-loving, self-congratulatory, power-jockeying hearts into humble hearts, transformed from the inside out, washed clean of the sin of self-love. Jesus taught the disciples in Mark 9, verse 35, that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And not only did Jesus exemplify this in his own life, right? It's not like just Jesus went around saying, guys, if you're if you're going to be great, you must be last and servant of all. Now everyone bow down and serve me immediately. That's what's so great about what he follows up with in Mark 10, 45. See, Jesus not only exemplified this in his first coming, but he used this very language of being servant of all to describe his purpose in coming as the servant savior. Mark 10, 45, y'all. One of the greatest verses in that gospel, in my opinion. Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And in John 13, we see Jesus drive this reality home as he stoops down to serve those whom he loved to the end. Jesus is the servant savior who stoops, stoops low. You see, Jesus is the servant savior whose heart is a heart of love. You see this in verses 1 through 4 in John chapter 13. Jesus is the servant savior whose heart is a heart of love. And here in the twilight hours before the cross, Jesus turns to foot washing in order to demonstrate his deep love for his own. Remember what, just flash back to a week ago. Remember what we said concerning John 3, 16, God so loved the world. And we said, what little word so, like, what does that mean? It's a magnitude sort of thing, but we also said it's a demonstration. God loved the world. How so? How did he love the world? He so loved the world that he demonstrated it by giving his son. Demonstration of love is a powerful thing. And Jesus in John 13 is demonstrating his love for those whom he loved by stooping low to perform the act that only a servant was considered worthy of doing. But even some people did not believe that a servant was even worthy of doing this act of foot washing. If you've been in church long enough, you know that what makes John 13 so astounding is that in Jesus' day, foot washing was a task given only to the most menial of servants. And some Jews taught that even Jewish servants should never be allowed to do it. Because it's just that low of a task. This is why it's so mind-boggling to see Jesus. Jesus who knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus who knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. It's so mind-boggling to see Jesus stoop in love to wash the filthy, dirt-caked feet of the disciples. But in this moment, what we're seeing is this. Jesus is radically displaying God's love by becoming a servant in that moment of foot washing. But also notice that in the latter part of verse 4 all the way down to verse 11, we also see this though. Jesus is the servant savior who stoops to save. Now this is where I need to hit pause real quick and explain something to you. John 13 is not in your copy of scripture right now because it exists to merely show us an example of servanthood. It is showing us an example of servanthood, but it's not there just to merely say, hey, I humbled myself. You should humble yourself too. Let's move on down the line. I've given you a picture, an example worthy to follow. If you approach John 13 in that way, what we're doing is we're quickly sprinting down the path of moralism. Jesus is a good moral guy. He does good moral things. You should do good moral things too. That's not the sole point of John 13. Because not only is Jesus the servant savior whose heart is a heart of love, but Jesus is the servant savior who stoops to save. And what he's doing in the foot washing is he is laying aside his outer garments. He's taking off his 
towel, he's tying it around his waist, and he's beginning to wash the disciples' feet because as he's doing so, he is performing an acted parable that is blending together two truths concerning the cross, which is just hours away. So as Jesus is bending low and he's He's washing the dirt-caked feet as he's tying his garments around him, as he's washing off the stink and the filth and the crud and the yuck and the smell. He is dim- demonstratively, he is demonstrating what love looks like, but he's doing so as an acted parable saying, guys, I am serving you in this way, but unless you buy into, believe in, look to the ultimate act of service that I'm literally hours away of going and doing, the service of being the Savior who's going to die on the cross to accomplish what you cannot accomplish, unless that kind of washing takes place, you can and have nothing to do with me. John 13 is ultimately about the cross. And in the washing of the feet, it's a parable, usually spoken by Jesus, but now what he's doing is he's actually acting out this parable right in front of them, saying, guys, your feet are filthy, rotten, stinky, smelly, dirty, crud everywhere. You're, you, you need to be washed. I'm going to humble myself and serve you in this way. Pull that into the spiritual world. Your hearts are dirty, filthy, stinky, rotten, smelly, shot through with the rancor of sin. And unless I cleanse you by the washing of the blood that I'm about to shed as the Lamb of God slain to take away the sins of the world, you can have nothing to do with me. And so this acted parable blends together two truths concerning the cross, how the cross not only cleanses from sin, but also how the cross is itself the ultimate in service. You see, the cross is essential to the true believer's cleansing, y'all. And Jesus is teaching his disciples this very truth by telling them, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, Peter doesn't get this in the moment, verse 7. But soon, Jesus says, he will understand that he can have nothing to do with him, to with Jesus, unless Jesus washes his sins away. He is soon going to understand, post-resurrection, that he, Peter, cannot serve his master until he has first been served by his master on the cross. Jesus had to become a servant for the disciples and subsequently for you and for me to have life. If he had not taken on the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, selflessly stooping to offer his life in our place, then you and I would have no hope of salvation and no ability to follow him. If Jesus did not come as a servant... That's the way it is possible for everyday disciples to pursue the servant Savior. Until we have first been served by the Savior who stooped to save us from our sin, we cannot serve Jesus and others as we were designed to do all for his glory. 
But thankfully, when Jesus humbly sacrificed his life on the cross in our place, absorbing God's wrath and giving us the gift of faith so that we would repent and believe in him, guess what Jesus does? He changes us. He changes our very nature for any who come believing in him. He gives us a new heart. And now what was impossible before this cleansing from the servant Savior this life of humble service, it is not only now possible, but it's actually delightful. It's actually wonderful. It's actually something we can now do and not go, oh man, I guess I better do what Jesus did. We got to go, yes. We now, empowered by the Spirit of God within us, get to walk in a way that images our Savior to those around us. Why? Because we have first been served by him. He served us by going to the cross, humbling himself low, taking on the form of a servant, dying the death we deserve to die on the cross. So then as he's resurrected from the grave, the Lord of life can then look at sin, dead sinners who must be cleansed of their sins, save them, transform them. And now the spirit lives within them and the spirit can empower us to walk in a way that looks like and confesses the servanthood of our Savior. And it's here, friends, it's right here from this place of sin-cleansed, transformation that Jesus extends the invitation to serve and be blessed see the danger of a sermon like this like I am called to be a servant is that we get the cart before the horse so some guy like me gets up and is like hey we're called to be servants go be a servant serve others like you serve Jesus and if we're not careful what we think what we, we are in danger of thinking is this I must go out to serve in order to earn something from God I must go out and serve in order to be in God's good grace to earn his grace to be in right standing with him and the reason why Jesus has all this interaction of verses 1 through 11 before he gets to these verses in 12 through 17 is because he's saying, guys, the 12 through 17 blessing that comes from being a servant is a moot point if you have not first been cleansed by me. But once you come to me and by grace are cleansed and you are now a sin cleansed, transformed man, transformed woman, because your hope is in Jesus Christ alone for that sin cleansing, now from this place, this foundation of grace, begin to walk forward in a way that looks like serving others out of the overflow of grace from the servant Savior himself. All right, it's important to get the order right. That's why Jesus now finally turns to John chapter 13, verse 12. And he says, guys, when I've washed your, their feet, says John, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, Jesus looks to the 12, the disciples, and says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what I've done to you? He says, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you're right to do so. That's who I am. And then he says this. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him, if you know these things. Blessed are you if you just nod your head and give mental assent to them. Blessed are you if you're happy if someone else serves you like Jesus. Blessed are you if you do them. Walk in obedience to him. In a sense, Jesus is looking at the 12 after he just washed off all their nasty, filthy, dirt-caked feet. And he says, guys, do you get what's going on here? Do you get it? In my kingdom, the king is a servant. The king of kings is a servant king. And either you're going to be cool with that in this kingdom, or you're not going to be cool with that. In my kingdom, the king is a servant, he's saying to the twelve. And as teacher and Lord, we will never be greater than he is. If the guy at the tippy top, who is Lord of lords and king of kings, stoops to serve others, coming not with the attitude of being served, but to serve and then to pour himself out in such a way that he might ransom sinners unto God. He's saying, you are not greater than me. You're a servant in the kingdom. You're not the king in the kingdom. And if the king in the kingdom stoops to serve, you're not greater. Why would you possibly draw the conclusion that you could find entrance into the kingdom through me and then sit back and expect not to be a servant? In my kingdom, says Jesus, the king is a servant. And as teacher and Lord, we will never be greater than he is. And if he just took on the task that a servant would feel undignified in carrying out, then what disciple of Jesus has the right ever to refuse serving? If our master humbly served others, we are not exempt for, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. We have no standing to say, I'm too good to do that. No one is above serving, as Jesus just demonstrated, right? I guess you could argue that if anyone had the right, as the king of kings and lord of the lords, to say, actually, like, I'm the one who deserves being served. He doesn't do that. So no one is above serving, but guess what? No one is below being served. Remember, what's the most probably singularly astounding fact from the John 13 foot washing incident. He washed the feet of all 11. Forget you, Judas. What's astounding is that he washed the feet of all 12. Remember, Judas, who's literally moments away of betraying the Son of God, into the hands of the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver, has his feet washed by the stooping Savior. You see, what Jesus is teaching and demonstrating is that in his glorious kingdom, the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high. 
that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. And it's in this paradoxical spirit-empowered servanthood that we find blessing. Blessed are you, verse 17, if you know these things and do them. So while serving, again, serving others is not a recipe for earning God's approval, it is an invitation that promises reward. And by serving others as we have first been served by our Savior, we discover a soul-satisfying and blessed way to live. See, the world sells us the lie that if you want your soul satisfied, be a servant of self. And it's only when you expend time, energy, money, resources, gifts, talent, home, checkbook, food on you, on you, on you, on you, on you, on you. That is how you will find soul-satisfying blessing. Jesus comes along and says, boom, kicks it right over on its head and says, no, actually, the way this works is for you to find that soul-satisfying, blessed way to live is when you pour yourself out as a servant of all, not as a self-servant. Remember, an everyday disciple has been created, saved, and called to serve. And their service is a testimony to the greatness of the gospel. Just ask yourself, have you ever been served by someone who models this, what we're talking about right now? Have you ever found yourself on the receiving end of a John 13 Christ-like servant who is just pouring themselves out for you in some way, shape, or form? My hunch is that as you received their humble service towards you, empowered by the Spirit on their end, walking in a way that's seeking to honor King Jesus, you did not walk away going, well, that had nothing to do with Jesus. That sure didn't testify to the gospel in their life at all. No, you walked away going, man, I can't believe, like what is going on with person X that person X wants to give of their time, their energy, their talent, their gift, their money, their food, their home, any way where they say not to me, but I want to honor God I want to be one who doesn't rob glory from him. I want to be one that gives glory to him so that I can look to fellow brothers and sisters and neighbors and coworkers, whoever it might be, and pour myself out when we do this in a way empowered by the Spirit, seeking to honor King Jesus, who's worthy to be honored in this way. It becomes a tangible way that the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the servant Savior who saves self-serving sinners, it gets put on display. People will begin to see a tangible, practical, demonstrative expression of the gospel. When Jesus' people in the Jesus family say, I am going to worship the king today by being a servant of all. All of a sudden now the gospel has legs and it goes marching forward right out these doors into the world around us. You just heard me stitch that together, but if you want to take all that and just 
bring it down to a sentence using the language of that gospel-shaped identities that we've studied so far, what you could say is this, an everyday disciple is a true worshiper, true worshiper, that's been adopted into a Jesus family, family, and thus are called to serve one another. True worshiper, Jesus family, now we look left, look right. How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? Someone else is saying, how can I serve? How can I serve? And it becomes this beautiful web of spirit-empowered service adopted into the family, worshiping God as they go about serving others in the family, worshiping God as well. Do you see how it's a beautiful, self-feeding, multifaceted reality of thriving everyday discipleship? So guys, I just got one question for you. One question. What kind of servant am I? What kind of servant am I? I'm asking you to ask yourself that. What kind of servant am I? As followers of Jesus, we can find ourselves in one of three places. First, I am a self-servant. A self-servant. Working only for my own interests. The problem here is that we weren't made to serve ourselves, as we've talked about quite a bit here. And when we give ourselves over to being a self-servant, we only find more misery. Have you ever tried to run down the rabbit trail of self-service? Believed, convinced that somehow on the end of this trail, I'm going to find not the misery, not the emptiness that I find in my life. Surely if I serve myself more and serve myself some more, misery will decrease, emptiness will decrease. And so you keep giving yourself over to serving yourself, and what happens is misery and emptiness just continue to increase. That's because we've bought into the lie, the very thing we're trying to avoid when we believe the lie that self-serving will somehow make us feel less miserable and empty. That is what is at the heart of being a self-servant, working only for my own interests. What kind of servant am I? Maybe you're not a self-servant, but maybe it's this. I am a selective servant. A selective servant. Serving only when it's convenient. Serving like this, though, is ultimately a facade. A selective servant's willingness to serve others is typically just a a facade for self-service. Right? So we're not going to go so far as to just say, I am going to serve nobody. And I'm just going to serve myself. What we do is say, it's like, okay, yeah, the serving other people thing, that's, that seems to be legit. But then what you do is you keep putting caveats on it all around the place. You keep putting fences up around this idea of service to where you come to the point where you begin to say, yeah, I'll serve you, brother, only so long as I get something out of it. Which is then ultimately in that moment just an act of self-service, guised under the thin veneer of serving others. So a selective servant serves only when it's convenient. It's a facade for self-service. It's not that this person, the selective servant, is opposed to serving, but it's service fueled by the mindset, what can be in it for me? Yeah, bro, I'm willing to serve you. Yeah, sister, I'm willing to give over to you. But surely there's a little something in it for me, right? And if there's not something in it for me, well, maybe I won't go that far in serving somebody. Selective servants... Service is done on my time, my schedule, my location, my priorities, especially if there's an opportunity to plaster our service onto our Facebook feed for the world to see. The selective servant is happy to fly across the world to feed children in a ghetto, but they balk at the consistent month in, 
month out sacrifice of neighboring the children where they live. They're happy to go and dig wells twice a year in an impoverished country, but they wouldn't loan you a lawnmower to save your life. They're happy to go someplace and take a selfie of all the good stuff that they're doing, but they won't see you struggling to carry in your groceries. And you're just like, well, you know what? Probably should have bought a little bit less. And then you just roll on into the house. That's the selective servant. There's nothing in it for me to go help my old neighbor carry in his groceries. There is something in it for me. Self-congratulation. If I can go somewhere and do something big and snap a picture of me with some little children and stick it onto my Facebook feed. Or perhaps, in answer to the question, what kind of servant am I, you can say, by God's grace, I am a servant of all. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But by God's grace, as I abide in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he is growing me to be a servant of all. Literally a servant who's ready to meet needs whenever and wherever they arise. You see, as everyday disciples who've been given everything we need in Christ, we are now liberated to give ourselves to recognition-free servanthood in the church. Recognition-free servanthood at work. Recognition-free servanthood in our homes and in our families. We have all received grace gifts from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says the Holy Spirit has given out gifts. Like a parade, right? Throwing candy. The Holy Spirit, I don't know if, maybe, I don't know, maybe that's lowering him down too much, but I got in my mental picture of him like just gifting the church like candy, you know, ah, just throwing gifts out. He's throwing out these grace gifts. And I think it's more than a coincidence that Peter, the hard head, the knucklehead who couldn't quite get what service was about in light of the cross in John 13 would eventually come to write in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 10, that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Don't use it to think they exist to serve you because you think yourself the greatest. Peter eventually, John 13, 7, Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, Peter, but afterward you will understand. What is the proof that Peter eventually came to understand? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So ask yourself, brothers and sisters, what kind of of servant am I? And as God the Father reveals where you are at, know that it is possible to change and it is possible to mature into a servant of all. If you are being honest with yourself right now and you're like, I'm a little bit more of a self-servant, I'm a little bit more of a selective servant, the answer isn't go run off, turn in on yourself, fix yourself, and then come back and try to present a brand new squeaky clean you to the Lord Jesus. No, if you find yourself in one or two, the answer is run right smack dab to him who by his power and by his grace will change you and mature you into a servant of all. And then we can go forward, not relying on our own strength, but as we rely on the Spirit's power to serve others like our servant Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do come humbly before you, confessing our need of you. We need you. We need you. We need you so bad.
Help us to walk as countercultural Christ-confessing brothers and sisters in this world. Help us to see that one of the ways we can walk as spirit-empowered, countercultural Christ-confessing men and women is to serve others in light of the way we've been served by Christ. God, help us in these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Grow us and mature us so that Christ would be put on display in our neighborhoods, workplaces, families, and homes. It's in the name of Christ, the resurrected servant, Savior, I pray these things. Amen.